honest, I was like super crushed. I felt like people were always like, oh my God, I can't believe you know exactly what you want to do. You're goal oriented. And then to sort of have to tell everyone like, oops, I want to do that. I, I just kind of, kind of made a mistake, I guess. Welcome to Path to Purpose. I'm your host, Jackson. Join me as I interview inspiring individuals to hear how they discovered their purpose and found the courage to pursue it. Today's guest is Janelle Jimenez, founder of Stellari, a fashion brand focusing on sustainable, functional, and fashionable apparel. Her career has been anything but a straight line. Her unconventional path has taken her all around the world and given her incredible opportunities in international relations, social media, and online gaming. So if you've ever felt like it's too late to change, listen to what Janelle has to say. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana um, in the 80s. And, um, you know, people find it hard to believe that um, I'm Filipino American. People find it hard to believe that in Indianapolis, Indiana, that there's Filipinos there. Um, <laughs> there, there are not not many, um, but there were. And mm-hmm. um, I think my parents uh, tried to raise me as as American as they could, to be perfectly honest. Um, I didn't learn Tagalog or Kapangpangan, um, which is my mom's dialect. Both of my parents worked super super hard. They were um, my mom was a nurse. She worked, um, felt like 12 hour days. I barely even saw her. My dad, uh, he is a small business owner and he, gosh, I mean, even now I think he works like 16 hour days when he really shouldn't. Um, there's no reason to, but you know, some people are just very workaholic. And I think that's, this kind of stuff they um, instilled in me was mm. just that I had to work really hard. I had to work harder than everyone else, um, and I and I should always be my own boss. Mm. Um, so Indianapolis was honestly back then kind of racist. Um, our school mascot was a Confederate soldier, and oh, they used the Confederate flag. And I just I was like one of two minorities in the school, and I just felt really trapped um, there. And I started getting it in my head that I wanted to, I don't know, see the world and, uh, I don't know, change the world or something. So I got this idea in my head that I was going to join the UN, whatever that means. Like, I, I want to work at the UN. That's a big, important place that smart people work at. Um, and so that was like this dream I had. Um, I also really loved the internet because, you know, for for somebody who was born in 81 um the only like i was um on the internet really early i guess on like aol and prodigy and i finally got to meet people who were different than the people i knew at school i got to meet other asian americans um and other asians actually um like outside of the u.s and it sort of just kind of reminded me that the world is a much much bigger place than you know this small small part of the south side of indianapolis and so in high school um, I just started thinking outside of Indianapolis and like, how can I, I guess, quote unquote, get out of Indianapolis? How can I change the world knowing that, you know, I'm nobody special and I didn't grow up in like New York City or Los Angeles or somewhere where I felt like people like were already 10 steps ahead of me because they just sort of had that international mindset. So I thought, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much how I grew up. Did you 
I mean, in your mind, did you feel like international relations would be your ticket out? And is that what you went on to study? Yeah, yeah, actually, exactly. Yes. So I, um, when I was in high school, I, uh, like many people got into anime, uh, back then that was Sailor Moon. Um, <laughs> and I, I, uh, I identified pretty early on that that was Japanese animation right, because right. it was so different. Like the stories were just so different from what I was used to seeing. And so I started researching it on the very early internet um, and started teaching myself Japanese because there were no classes in, in Indianapolis. Wow. So I, I ended up taking classes that were for business people. Um, because Honda actually uh, has uh, factories in Indiana. So there are people who are trying to learn Japanese so they can you know, work with um, those executives. And so I would be in these classes as a 15-year-old with you know, people who are 30, 40, 50. Um, and it was, it was wow. strange. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I learned business Japanese before I learned anything else. And I, I learned Sailor Moon Japanese before anything else. So before I could say something, really useful like before I could say like hello my name is Janelle I know how to say ridiculous things like you know the illusionary silver crystal or whatever <laughs> um and I um I applied to to uh, do an exchange program in Japan I got into it um I was placed in rural Japan it's um honestly it's like the West Virginia of Japan um in 97 and that was was this an exchange during high school or, yes, or college yeah. okay oh it was wow during high school yeah I really really liked living abroad and I really liked the challenge of um trying to communicate with people when you don't know the same language and even when you do like everyone has different um culture and expectations and so I thought that was really exciting and so yeah. that really solidified my desire to um, pursue international relations in college. And what was your time in, in college like? Did you study anything else besides IR? Um, I studied um, I studied IR at USC and also um, I don't know if the degree is still called this, but it's called it was called East Asian Languages and Culture, and it was like mm -hmm. focused on Japan. And so I, within those two majors, I focused on like economics and politics. Yeah. Um, I had the idea in my head that I wanted to work, I don't know, at the World Bank or the IMF or the UN, like this these big international organizations. Um, because I just I just had this meta view of the world as I, I and I, I know this like when I think about it now, it's just so naive, but that, you know, all these countries would just sit around at a table and talk these complicated issues and magically <laughs> fix them. Yeah. Um, so college was, it was like, um, it was hard, um, you know, doing two majors. I was just, I don't know. I never got to do any of the fun classes that, um, no, I, I, <laughs> I but I mean, stories it, about. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like you knew pretty early on, like even as a high schooler that you wanted to, you know, go global and specifically Asia. And it sounds like throughout that whole time, high school and college, you were working towards that singular goal, right? Did it did it all feel like, did you just feel very driven and sure about this path at that point? Yes, at that point, yes. I, it, I felt like this was the only thing I wanted to do, except maybe work at a tech company in Asia. Um, mm -hmm. But it was just like, this is this is my path. This is what I want to do. Like everything I studied in college for it. And then I, I went back to Japan um, to uh, study abroad 
uh, while I was at USC. And so yeah. went to Tokyo International University and, you know, took Japanese politics classes, got my Japanese to fluent level. And, you know, I was just like ready for this path, quote unquote, to go to the UN. I don't think there are a lot of people out there who know as early as high school, like <laughs> what, what they want to even major in, let alone what they want to do after college graduation. So that's impressive. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds impressive, but I, I mean, I ultimately, I, I don't work at the UN now. So right. yeah, you know, like. But to even have an idea like that, right? <laughs> it's, it's pretty yeah. impressive. Um, so you graduate with these two majors from college. Um, what do you go on to do? I, um, from there, I uh, applied to the JET program, which um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's a Japanese uh, program um, sponsored by the Ministry of Education that's been going on since like 1970. Um, mm -hmm. And so what they normally, they usually send English teachers and they place them in um, school. So that's what most people are familiar with, with the right. JET program. But they also have a program where they place um, coordinators for international relations uh, in like city halls, prefectural, like, um, like state, uh, um, what do you call it? Can't even think of what the word is in English now, like a state, uh, Capitol building, I guess. Um, and um, you need to be fluent in Japanese for that. So I applied to that and I got into that, which was for me, like, you know, the dream is that I, I had taught myself Japanese enough oh. that I could work in a Japanese government environment. Um, and so I worked there for three years. Uh, I actually got placed back in the place that I went um, in high school, wow. which... I'm not gonna lie, kind of crushed me because it is it is incredibly remote out there, very, very isolated. Um, one of my friends actually lived on these islands that uh, they used to exile samurai <laughs> and what? emperors too. So that's how that's how that's like crazy. out there it is. Um, and I mean, but but I'm glad I did it, even though it was oftentimes very challenging because I just think that's a side of Japan that a lot of people never get to see. So it's just rice patties and frogs and dragonflies is basically what my wow. life was for three years. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of work were you doing? Yeah, I think, did you mention that it was in a local city hall? Yes. So it was in a local city hall and I was sort of tasked with internationalizing this town of 10,000 or 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of got to do anything I wanted to as long as I could get the budget for it approved um, and basically had to do everything myself. So I did everything from translating um, tourism documents. Uh, I helped with uh, getting a UNESCO World Heritage uh, designation for one of the uh, tourism sites in Shimane Prefecture, where I lived. Um, mm -hmm. I have been the English guide voice at, you know, random little small town museums. <laughs> I would show um, VIP guests around. Sometimes we would have students from um, the U.S. come to visit, and I would, yeah. I would help them. Um, and I would also visit elementary schools um, because they weren't really learning English, so it was more to just like, you know, let's get these kids um, I guess, used to the idea of foreigners. Um, Got it. Because this part of Japan is actually so remote that I remember one time I was taking some students from an agricultural college in the U.S. and I, we were taking them around the prefecture and kind of showing them the new modern ways that 
uh, Japan is trying to diversify how they um, grow and sell rice and like the new markets and stuff like that. And this old grandma comes out of her house, like comes over to us and just sits down on the ground on this curb. And she's just like, just shell shocked. And I walked over to her and I asked her, hey, what, what's wrong? Can I help? And she was just like, I have never seen a white person in my life. Oh my goodness. Yeah, getting to sort of be in that place where you really are um, exposing um, people to just the outside world, mm. even though it was sometimes hard and frustrating. I think that experience really kind of taught me a lot of empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. um, I think back then I, I would look back at Indiana and be like, oh, those people were so racist. And it's, it's not necessarily true. It's sometimes yeah. people just don't know things. And like, I think it, I learned from that experience that it's that sometimes it's nothing malicious and it's not hate related. They just don't know. Right. Right. How did those three years come to an end? And at the end of that, and at the end of your time in Japan, um, did you still feel energized about the global path? I think it confirmed it, um, but okay. I um, I knew that working in rural Japan wasn't, you know, I needed to basically leave. Um, the, so the contracts for JET are set for up to three years, so you can request to go to five um, if your city office wants you to, and they did, but I, I felt it was like a good time to leave. Mm -hmm. um, I left in 2008 in um the end of July. And I was planning to just kind of travel around Asia for a couple of months, um, which would have been exactly when the um, financial crisis hit. Um, so I kind of decided I was just going to travel around Asia for the next year, because mm -hmm. it's not like I could get a job in the US. And I had saved money. So kind of spent that um, kind of spent about eight months traveling around Asia, spending a month wow. in just about every country, studying for, um, you know, the GRE uh, in case I want to go to um, get my master's degree. Yeah. Um, and just kind of seeing the world more. And I think that was where I kind of realized that maybe the things that I had studied were just too far removed and too too much of like intellectual case studies to be something that I found fulfilling. Um, so when I ended up um, coming back to the US, I moved to New York um, and I applied to uh, the Japanese mission um, to the United Nations and I got the job there, which was amazing because that really was like the stepping stone to a path at the State Department. Everything was going like this is like the perfect track for somebody basically yeah. and within nine months i knew like i i had made this just terrible mistake and everything to know, <laughs> to know, let me cut you off a little bit yeah. first of all what is what exactly is the japanese mission to the oh, u.n yes yes so um basically uh, I'm trying to think of the easiest way to explain okay. this. Basically, they're 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 not consulates or embassies, um, because like an embassy is you know Japan to the U.S. or Japan to Germany, what have you. But um, the permanent mission of Japan to the United Nations is basically the Japanese embassy to oh. the United Nations, and all of those missions are actually in New York City. 
So I was technically working for the Japanese government. I mean, on one hand, I was so proud of myself for having having sort of reached, it wasn't the ultimate goal, but having reached just the, like that UN like thing yeah. that I dreamed about um, in high school. But when I was there, that's kind of when I realized it really, really sunk in that this was just not the path that I wanted to take in life. I mean, so when you got there and got that, got that offer, you must've been so excited. How did that begin to to degrade like your your experience what, um, what did you start noticing one is um so japan has been trying i don't know if they i don't i actually don't know if they're still doing this but they've been trying to sort of help rewrite the guide rules for the un for like over 20 years and, and this this is a book uh, of protocol basically so if you have a meeting with the senior ambassadors and maybe two second tier ambassadors between two countries what do you call that meeting um they have not been able to get anyone to agree for over 20 years um at wow. the time when i was there and so if you can't get people to agree on what you're going to call a meeting like yeah. how can you get people to agree to some of the major problems um, that exist. Um, and there were just little things like meeting senior um, ambassadors from, from countries I won't name who are were clearly um, unqualified, who didn't care about the job, just kind of wanted to party in New York. Mm-hmm. And like that sort of stuff just made me feel a bit cynical and jaded about um, these big, um, I guess, international non-government organizations like the UN, the World Bank, et cetera. I mean, it, it was, that was all kind of what made me realize that I, I just kind of, kind of made a mistake, I guess. And I was, I, I have to be honest, I was like super crushed. I felt like mm. I was 28. I felt like I had failed at life. I'd wasted um, so much money going to USC and, you know, getting these degrees and uh, now what was I supposed to do? Um, and I look back at it now and I know that, you know, it was just like, I was just 28. Like, it's, right. it's not, yeah, I didn't ruin my life, but it was, it was really hard for me to admit because like you said, uh, people were always like, oh my God, I can't believe you know exactly what you want to do. You're goal oriented. And then to sort of have to tell everyone like, oops, I mm want to do that um but you know you don't know what you don't know and i'm not sure i could have known that i would have hated it until i was there right right so at the end of the 18 months you decide hey this is this is not the path that you want to continue on um so then what do you decide like what do you do well so uh like i mentioned i grew up on the internet and 2000 and um 2009, 2010 was just basically the perfect time to be in New York and um, be really good at social media when nobody else was. Uh, you know, you would see like, you know, we all we all joke about um, seeing something like you need six years of experience this thing, but no one had six years of experience in social media. Mm. Like Facebook launched in 2007. Like that was not that wasn't a thing, and so you would just see these. Um, job listings and they would just be open forever because there, there really wasn't the right talent in New York at the time. Um, I, because I basically grew up on the internet, I, I knew 
um, how to do community building. I knew how to do Facebook ad buys. I knew things about SEO because I'd owned my own, I ran my own Sailor Moon fan communities. Oh, wow. All sorts of stuff. So I was just able to use that. And because I was a big gamer myself, I actually got a job by basically talking to my manager who happened to work on a game that I really loved. And uh, we both played StarCraft and like he just hired me because of that basically. <laughs> and um, I basically just got headhunted from New York, like startup to media company to game company. And I, um, I felt like I really want to move to Los Angeles, move back um, after being gone for so long. And that's mm-hmm. where a lot of game companies are. And one of my Japanese friends actually pointed out this role at Riot Games, uh, they make League of Legends, and it was for Japan Publishing Manager. And it was it was literally my entire <laughs> resume. Like It was perfect perfect for it and yeah. um yeah i applied to that uh they hired me and yeah so i moved i picked the, everything up and just moved to los angeles um because it was basically the dream job uh, another dream job another dream job yeah i'm super excited to talk about that because i'm a huge league of legends oh, fan yeah? myself okay. but oh, um okay. <laughs> but before we do i, I want to back up a little bit and so you did talk about how you know it was scary for you to admit that this goal that you had been working towards was not actually the thing you wanted how did you like how did you i guess end up making that decision and like there must have been doubts going through your head about your future and about losing progress and about wasting your education how did you manage all of those thoughts or voices yeah yeah i you know honestly if i could do it all again i would have probably um talk to more mentors and maybe a therapist because it was it was probably six months of wallowing and just being like what have I done um like you know my parents are going to be so disappointed I didn't even tell them for a couple of months that Mm -hmm. I quit um and I I just yeah, I was just really embarrassed, I guess. And right. then I I started talking to my friends in the tech industry. And I think the nature of the tech industry is very transient and ephemeral. And almost everyone I knew had, especially back then, was just so excited with the possibilities. And like you, if you had the talent, you could, you could do it. And people just kept telling me like all you need to do is just start getting some experience under your belt so I decided to sort of like take a step back and think about this strategically Um, I kind of planned this out like I would have you know if I was proposing an economic plan for a city hall or something it's like okay what do I have now what are we trying to get to like how much money do I have to invest in this so I took a whole bunch of uh, volunteer um, jobs um, with like alumni associations that I was in, um, the Japan National Tourism Board, just anything I could find that was like digital advertising or social mm. media management. And I just like ran Twitter accounts so wow. I could put that on my resume. Um, New York University had a digital marketing class. So, uh, I mean, certificate. So I started um, taking that. Um, so I could, you know, just, you know, it was nice that I could do those Google ad buys and Facebook ad buys, but I still didn't know the sort of lingo, I guess. Um, and that actually helped me a lot to be able to structure a resume and uh, be able to talk about, uh, you know, 
the things that tech recruiters want to hear basically mm-hmm. um and yeah i i just i was just like okay and then what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna take the first job that offers me literally anything and then from there i'm gonna see where i go and i yeah. actually never had to really apply anywhere again until riot because just i mean it was just perfect timing i guess but people just came to me wow I guess, yeah, you possessed the right skills at the right time and seemed like it really paid off. Yeah. And I think if I hadn't, I think if I had just sat and wallowed, I know for a fact I wouldn't have gotten anywhere. I think, I think the, I don't remember exactly the conversation, but somebody, I, oh, oh, it was a conversation I had with an internet friend. Mm -hmm. She was in the gaming industry. She really wanted to work in Japan. I was at the UN. I really wanted to work in the gaming industry. And she was just like, you should just do it. And I was like, aren't I too old? And she's like, no. She's like, aren't I too old to go to Japan? I'm like, no. <laughs> and like, just having that opposite person who already yeah, yeah. was jaded by the tech industry and then her talking to me and I was being jaded about working with like Japanese government. It was just, it was kind of perfect because she kind of lit that fire of like, you know what? What's, I'm just going to do this. Like, what's the harm? And if I can't do this, then maybe I'll just go back to working for like a Japanese bank or I'll be a translator. Because mm. like, I knew I could always fall back on that. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I might not be happy, but I knew I had that skill set, so I could. Um, but I wanted to give myself like, you know, th- six months to see if I could get into the tech industry. And you did. And I did, yeah. <laughs> Janelle pulled off a hard pivot from international relations to video games, and she was about to embark on the journey of a lifetime at Riot Games, where she would work on one of the most popular games in the world, League of Legends. Let's hear about the super cool job, but also why it wasn't enough to stop her from eventually pursuing her passion for fashion. I swear that wasn't meant to rhyme. And so... You joined Riot Games, and I think you were still able to you were still able to leverage your experience in, uh, like in Asia and your Japanese language yes. skills, right? Yes, absolutely. So when I joined, they didn't actually they were actually weren't ready to launch the Japan office um, at the time. So I um, started working with um, the, the Southeast Asia regions because um, one of Riot's biggest. Um, player bases actually in um, Vietnam. And wow. so I worked with seven regions uh, with Garena, which is um, a publisher in um, Southeast Asia that, that um, publishes uh, League of Legends for them. And yeah. I got to travel um, all over um, Southeast Asia, got to meet uh, a lot of teams. And because I kind of understood the economic situation of players there i was able to propose things like hey we should relook at the prices for things in other regions and you know we should we should look at uh sales for um, skins and champions to see if they vary from region to region because i bet they will um and you know i was able to give a lot of advice about japan in particular because that was some place that riot was trying to enter the market um you mentioned skins. Could you just explain yes. what that is? <laughs> yeah. So a skin, I, I honestly, I think the easiest way to describe it is like a digital outfit for your character in a video mm-hmm. game that people pay for either through um, 
It might be through uh, earned currency in game. For example, maybe if you play for a certain amount of hours and you you do some achievements, you might unlock a new outfit yeah. or you, you uh, pay for it in um, real money. And so for Riot games, um, they don't have public numbers, but the you know it, they're estimated to um, to make um, over a billion dollars a year, and like nine over ninety percent of that is in skins. Um, and wow! Yeah, and like uh, there's other there's games like League of Legends, like um, uh, Arena of Valor slash um, mm-hmm. Honor of Kings, and I mean, I believe last year they made almost a billion dollars in two months uh selling skins it's just crazy Um, that's crazy what what are a couple (laughs) of the coolest skins that uh that you were able to work on um so i i was the product lead on um kda which was a k-pop themed um skin line man um so I'm, I'm really proud of that it was it was hard um we had to really fight for it um but it was awesome getting to see it uh, when they were debuting it at the World Championships for League of Legends in um, Korea. Um, I got to go there and uh, they had like virtual reality, like, well, it was AR actually, augmented reality pop stars and um, the publishing team was, and the music team were able to work with uh, two members of G-Idol, which are a K-pop group. Um, I believe they're bringing it back this year and they've, um, I think Twice, which is another huge K-pop group, is actually doing a song on an album. So I don't know. It feels really good to to have been part of something that was just so cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, for me, because I love fashion and um, style, it was pretty cool to just like make something that was a little more real world. Because um, usually, you know, uh, in League of Legends, especially, the outfits are more like here's a witch or here's like a dragon yeah. uh, master or something and, and less yeah. like here's a k-pop idol and something that looks like louis vuitton right right so so it sounds like your time at uh riot games was kind of a combination of um like brand building marketing yes. and yes. like product right yes. for, that's for actually yeah that's actually um the two biggest roles I had at Riot. So I was a brand manager for three years and then I was a product manager on skins for almost three years. And how would you describe your experience in, in, in each of these roles? Were they, were they positive? What were the negatives and positives, I guess? I think, I mean, the positives, I, I, I love working with teams and I love sort of trying to pull out um, the great ideas that these artists and um, creative people have and sort of giving them that sandbox, uh, the sandbox being like, you know, these are the goals we want to hit. This is how we want players to feel when they play this. This is the aesthetic we're going for. But yeah, giving them that sort of safe place to just go for it. But I was personally always proud of the fact that like most players really liked uh, the work that my team did. Yeah. But I, mean, you, I you, oh go ahead. Sorry. Go oh, ahead. I was just going to say and you yourself you were a gamer, right? Yes, yeah. So League of before I even joined Riot, League of Legends was my favorite game. But yeah, like, you know, for me being a gamer myself and like loving League and like I don't know, getting to work on a project uh, as a product manager or brand manager that you're really passionate about is is amazing, but it can also 
mean that you get too emotionally involved. I see. And I think that was the hardest thing for me is that uh, if if players were unhappy, um, they would be very vocal about it on Twitter. And while I didn't care that they were telling me to like die in a fire so much, <laughs> I knew that it really hurt my team. Like right. my team really. I mean, it's really hard to hear what you think, what seems like thousands and thousands of people saying that totally. you're a terrible artist. And, yeah. I, and I would just feel like I let my team down, like, because I was their lead and I didn't protect them. I didn't do enough to make sure that this didn't happen. Um, and I think that was probably one of the hardest things for me. And I think ultimately that led um, to me getting very burnt out. Um, which is why I um, eventually left Riot. Yeah. And so at year six, you know, you you basically felt that maybe another change was necessary. This time, since it wasn't your first time, it wouldn't be your first time changing directions. Did it feel the same or different from when you first left? I guess the uh, like the UN track. Yeah. You know, several years prior. This, this definitely felt different. Um, I, I didn't have that, oh, I've destroyed my life feeling. Mm -hmm. But I did feel, I, I did feel like, man, I, I knew I wanted to go into um, fashion. Why didn't I do this sooner? Because there was a point when I was in New York where I actually got to choose, I had two competing offers. One was to be um, a digital strategist at one startup and the other was to uh, work at Uniqlo um, oh, cool. on, on a management track. Um, and I was really torn because yeah. I loved Uniqlo. It was it was Japan oriented. I love fashion. So I didn't know what to do, but I ended up taking that tech role. And so when I was going through the should I leave Riot thing and like start a fashion company, I um that it it definitely reminded me like, man, I I basically took like a 10 year detour. <laughs> um you know, that feels bad. <laughs> um, but I, I now look at it and I realize that everything I've done has kind of prepared me. Um, and I don't consider the things I've done failures. They were just, they were just things I had to learn um, to prepare myself for whatever my, my future is, I guess. Right. So, so I'm curious, when you left Riot and you were thinking about your next step, you know, in, in the fashion world, um, what were the potential paths that you were considering? Was it start a company or, or nothing? Or did you think about, like, I guess, what was your decision process? <laughs> uh, honestly, um, it was like start a company or nothing. Okay. It was, it was kind of, so what I, I knew was I had the skill set and expertise to be able to go back to the game industry um, kind of whenever I wanted to. Right, um, right. Um, and and it, because the game industry is so small and there are, there's always people who need a product manager. Yeah, like, yeah. And so it was, it was going back to that whole, well, I could always work at a Japanese bank kind of thing. So I always had that fallback plan. And I basically told myself that I was going to give myself a year. I was going to launch this company and we would just see where it would go in a year. And then, you know, like by now I had the right frameworks um, as a 
product manager to think strategically like what's my go no go like what's the point where I'm just throwing good money after bad like so I, I, I built these like milestones it's like when I hit this then we'll move forward and then at this point we'll reevaluate so like my next reevaluation point is actually in March so next March March 2021 what did you end up calling your startup um and and what was it and what what was the um the mission so i i ended up calling my startup stellari which is actually my gamer tag <laughs> <laughs> um which is 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 kind of hilarious but what i really wanted to do um so i'll, I'll tell you this, this the story for where i guess where this started so mm -hmm. i um i was on a business trip to paris for um an esports tournament um, in 2014. So basically, I didn't have time to go home and, or sorry, go back to the hotel and change. And I basically was walking around Paris, the city that I'd always dreamed of, in basically a Jansport, no offense to Jansport, Jansport backpack mm -hmm. and um, like, I don't know, like hiking clothes, because that was basically right. the only thing I could find that would be comfortable and, you know, not smelly or whatever. And I just, I felt so uncomfortable when I walked into the business dinner. It was like at a Michelin starred restaurant. I felt so awkward. No one looked at me, but it, I felt awkward. Um, and I was just like, why, why is it that I had to do this? Like, why aren't there travel clothes that look like, look really nice? Like, so I started getting this idea in my head of like, how, how hard would it be to, make a perfect backpack or how hard would it be to make a dress with really deep pockets and RFID blocking um, and because like as a product manager I was just like okay this is the goal I want I see this yeah. vision it's like what are the steps that I would need to take to get there and so when I was thinking about leaving Riot this was already like what I was thinking in my head is how do I make this happen mm. Where has your company gotten to now and, and has it been affected? Have your plans been affected by COVID in any way? Yes. Yes. So um, in uh, around January, uh, I was planning to launch. I want to launch a, a line of clothing um, in the summer because I had this background in international relations, I still read a lot of international news because it's it's become more of a hobby to me mm -hmm. um, than anything. And I had noticed this, this mysterious Chinese disease um, in January. Um, and it was just like, you know, it was like a little side note in whatever I was reading. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Okay. And then I started when they shut down Wuhan, China, that's when yeah. I realized that this is probably much, much bigger um, than we were talking about in the US. And I basically decided in late February, March to pivot everything and put all of my startup capital to making cloth masks. Um, and at the time, the CDC um, and government officials here in the US and even the, um, the WHO were, were saying like, don't wear masks, like wow. they're not effective. Yeah. And I, I got in a lot of like fights with friends who, you know, now they're, you know, pro mask, of course, but <laughs> I got in a lot of fights about that. And, you know, I was so frustrated. And I realized that instead of just writing angry Facebook comments and like, you know, 5,000 word essays on Medium, right. I had everything I needed to, you know, um, 
do something about this basically. So I redirected my startup capital and launched an Indiegogo that got funded um, in like three days for like $30,000. Um, and we, we made 10,000 masks and basically donated them um, all over Los Angeles and even shipped some to like Puerto Rico and North Carolina. Just anyone who said that they needed masks, uh, we sent them to them. Um, I was actually kind of, I mean, I don't want to say first to market because I'm not a, you know, I'm a tiny, tiny startup, but I was able to put like cloth masks out before a lot of other companies right. were because we launched this before the CDC even changed their guidance. What can listeners expect from Stellari in the upcoming months or, or year? So um, after we did that initial run of masks, we actually, um, wanted to make a sustainable mask uh, with a better fit. So that's what yeah. we started working on next. Um, we're selling sustainable masks now. Um, they can last over 50 times in the wash. We actually designed them to fit most yeah. adult faces and they're made of this really nice material called lyocell. Um, and so we, we decided to just use that as um, sort of a soft launch um, to sort of gauge interest, see what um, our customer base would like, where people are coming from, just, you know, kind of take a look at all of those metrics. But now, you know, like, I've never really, I never want to be a mask company. So mm-hmm. our next um, product launch, I'm hoping to release in November. And it's kind of going back to that original dream I had, which was like very versatile clothing for yeah. Uh, women, but also men, but women who um, who basically need something that is comfortable and also versatile enough to for you to feel good and feel safe and express yourself um, and also sustainable. You've changed directions a couple different times yeah. um, and found a couple different dream jobs. What have you learned about the term dream job since I guess since college graduation I think I've learned that the old way of thinking of a dream job as this one place that you want to be for the rest of your life is pretty outdated I think I think we live we're living longer lives Um, a lot of people don't want to just you know clock in somewhere and clock out um, for like you know 30 years and you know retire and get a watch and even if you did not many companies are really that loyal to you in the first place. So it's outside of government, it's actually kind of hard to find a job like that. Mm. And I think, you know, in the past, it was like, oh, if you you don't find this dream job, you're just gonna hate your life. And I kind of learned that like a dream job can take a lot of different um, aspects and it can be a dream job for like right now in your life at that moment. Um, But there could be another dream job for that next stage in your life Um, because I think there is a very real thing that happens especially as people who are very talented move up a company and you know maybe they become director of something or vice president of something but that they're never going to be CEO and then they kind of don't know where what to do next and I think that's where the midlife crisis kind of comes in because you you did everything to reach this like pinnacle of your career, but you haven't thought about what you're going to do next. And I, you know, I saw that in my parents when they retired, they had a, they had a, 
a huge struggle with what to do next because they never thought about that. And I think one of the nice things, I guess, about me having to go through two dream jobs and beating myself up over it is I, I think I have the clarity now to understand that I will probably have maybe two or three more dream jobs mm. before um, I'm done working. And, yeah. and like, that's okay. Janelle, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, where can listeners find out more about you, your business, or your social media? Uh, so uh, my business is Stellari, um, stellari.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at Shop Stellari, uh, also on Twitter. And on, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at the Janelle MJ. What I love most about my chat with Janelle is her message that it's okay to change your mind. Your dream career might be your dream career for a few years, but it doesn't have to stay that way for the rest of your life. As each year passes, you evolve and mature as a person, so why wouldn't your interests and goals? Even though Janelle was among the rare few who had a clearly defined goal starting from high school, when she later learned that international relations wasn't right for her, she wasted little time in choosing change. For those of you out there thinking about changing careers, I hope this story helps you take some pressure off yourself because chances are, this won't be the last time you make a change and that's totally okay. Because the only rules to your career are the ones you write for yourself. I would love to hear what your takeaways were for the story and feature them in a future episode. To do that, or to leave questions or suggestions, you can email me at pathtopurposepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, it's a tongue twister. Catch you on the next episode.